Welcome to Bible Q&A, a monthly discussion with Luther Seminary faculty about everything you wanted to know about the Bible but were afraid to ask. I'm Cameron Howard. And I'm Eric Barreto. And we're here today with Craig Kester, who teaches New Testament at Luther Seminary. Uh, thanks for joining us, Craig. Today we're um, dealing with Christmas and the Christmas story, and it's, it's, you know, it's this marvelous set of stories that we have both in Matthew and Luke. It's part of our celebration around Christmas with pageants and, and readings. But you focus on a particular part of the Christmas story. What's, what's your favorite part of the Christmas story? Well, as I look at this in the uh, it, 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 trying to get a sense of a fresh reading of, of the Christmas story, it's it's that subversive element, I guess, is what I what I call it. That if anybody knows anything about the Bible, it's usually the the Christmas story would be up there at at the top. You know that you've got the angels and the shepherds and the babe in the manger. But as I read my way through the Christmas story and see all of it, starting off with the political dimensions right at the beginning. You know, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. It's, oh, you've got it, this imperial it reality. Off, it starts off ominously. It does. It does. You, you don't start off with a sweet babe in the no, manger. You no. start off with an act, a decree coming out of Rome. That's a big deal. Well, talk about why that's a big deal. Because I think um, I think when we think about census, we think about, oh, we're just going to count out people and people are going to study it and they'll be sociologists or things like that. But that's not really what the census was about. No, it really wasn't. It, it wasn't about the sort of the Roman academicians wanting to learn a little bit more about uh, who they were governing. You know, I mean, a census, you, you want to know a census for tax purposes. That's that's one of the key elements. I mean, how many people have you got? You know, what, what how do you take an inventory of the of the resources that you've got under your control? Uh, census is a good way to do that, and you want to leave no corner of the empire unturned. So uh, it, when the census goes out through the, the entire world, that's that's the impression that people would get. You might also want to know, I mean, how many able-bodied men do you have that you could uh, conscript into the military? I mean, what are, what are your options there as far as uh, strengthening that, that kind of military presence and uh, resources for operating out there, uh, ex- expanding the borders of the empire? Yeah. It's almost as if... Uh- the Caesar's uh, flexing his muscles at that point and showing yeah. um, both the kind of power that he has over the world, but also the kind of power that he can wield if he so wishes. Yeah, that's a nice way to put it. Caesar flexing his muscles. And, and you get the ripple effect in the Christmas story itself. The decree goes out of Rome. Uh, Joseph and Mary, they've got to leave their homes. I mean, it's a kind of a, oh, there's an intrusion. Uh, they weren't just taking sort of a uh, a, a kind of enjoyable little, uh, little vacation. Tr- not a vacation. <laughs> no, I mean it's this is inconvenient that uh, they're being pressured into doing something that they would not have chosen to do otherwise. You use the word disruption in your essay, which I think is really helpful to think about. That their lives are disrupted, but then also there's something about the telling of this story that implies that the empire is being disrupted as well. How is that happening? Yeah, that's a nice way to put it. That the there is the empire being disruptive, and I think the element of taking themes, uh, motifs that were common uh, in the Roman age. And giving them a, a different twist in the telling of the Christmas story. Um, I mean, th- things that you find, uh, obviously you're starting off with Caesar Augustus. Uh, but then when you get a little further into the story, you find that the whole notion of kingship revolves down to this uh, babe in the manger. Uh, that's a very subversive move. It's it's not just that you've got an alternative to Caesar on the same plane. Um, you, you've got kingship of, of another order uh, going on there. There's this boldness, I think, that Luke exhibits in in framing the story the way he does. So he he says he takes the most uh, powerful figures of of the day and aligns this story of a little baby in the middle of nowhere in the kind of corner of the universe 
and says, what happens here in, in the city with this poor family is so important that it should resound in the halls of Caesar. It's yeah. a really bold claim to make. I mean, it's it's audacious to say that this little story of this little family has anything to do with what's happening at the center of the world's power. But if you know your scriptures, you know that this isn't just any city, right? And it's yes. not going to be yes. just any lineage. So yeah. there's a way in which, yes, this is small uh, corner in this small place, but um, if you ha- have been steeped in the Hebrew scriptures, yeah, yeah, well, just if you've been steeped in the Hebrew scriptures, you know the story of David and that David was the great king, and that at, at one time Israel um, was this sovereign nation, and then there's a story of empire after empire that comes through. Maybe think about the Babylonian Empire, which um, sent Judah into exile, um, and then the Persian Empire, which said, "Everybody come back, but uh, pay your taxes." <laughs> and uh, the common you're theme still... running through there, yeah. <laughs> right? And so then you get the Greeks, and then you, here we are at the Romans. Um, but there is a greatness in the history um, that is uh, there's a shadow of that, I think, in the story as well. Yeah. And I think. One thing that might be happening there is that the one thing that Babylon and Persia and all those that litany of empires have all in common is that they eventually all fall, and there may be, and maybe that's some of the subtlety that Luke is saying is that there's this there's this um, impermanence about yeah. these empires yeah. in contrast to this little child bo- born, you know, in these really odd circumstances that is going to change the world. That there we have the true savior of the world. Yeah. And even a term like that, uh, savior. I mean, we're so used to hearing it, I think, in in uh, religious contexts, you know, Jesus, calling Jesus savior. It's a familiar kind of uh, expression. But that but the, that Greek expression, soter, uh, I mean, it was one of the titles that was used for the emperor. You, you'd find it in inscriptions. I mean, other other sort of uh, nobility, you know, the wealthy, the the patrons, uh, those who would build the uh, the aqueducts and the monumental gates and the city, pave the city streets or whatever. They, you, you could be a savior and a benefactor. I mean, it was it was that kind of uh, quality. And the emperor was the the soter, the savior above all. But here you get a, that sort of a counterclaim um, that. That that unsettles you. That offers not just um, well, you've got one wealthy patron over here versus another one over there. It's wow, out out of this uh, impoverished, more marginalized existence, that that's where you're finding salvation of another order. Yeah, that that term isn't. I think we use it in so many religious ways that mm-hmm. we lose. I think in the story that the political dimensions is that they're making a claim about yeah about the the political structures of their own time. They are like Luke's own time. Yeah. And I think what's interesting about all these readings is that you kind of have to know the code. Like you have to know the scriptures. You have to know the history of Israel. So I wonder if Caesar picks this up. Probably Caesar's not reading the Gospel of Luke. But if he does, (laughs) he may not really see a threat to himself because he, he, again, sees his insignificant little family in the middle of nowhere. um, Doesn't know perhaps uh, the full lineage and uh, uh, understanding behind the term Messiah. Um, and he just can dismiss it offhand. But if you know the code, so to speak, if you know the story, then you see the subtle ways in which Luke is undercutting the claims of 
of, of the, the most powerful empire the world had ever seen at that point. Yeah, you do. Uh, even in the conclusion of the story, that's one of those those delightful things, you know, where the where it's uh, the angels are, are proclaiming peace on earth. Yeah. And you think, oh my gosh, uh, was that ever a sort of the common theme that uh, that would go out in terms of uh, uh, probably Rome's a central theme in in Rome's uh, political you know propaganda would be the Pax Romana uh, that that we have established peace on earth. We're the ones who have the right to pronounce peace on earth and enforce it, uh, create it through. Uh, through, through the sheer exercise of power, through the sheer <laughs> exercise of power, and so to hear the hear it now that that you've got angels that are declaring peace, not just locally but peace on earth. It's taking this global claim and uh, centering it so differently, uh, in in what what otherwise would appear to be uh, powerlessness becomes actually um, the center from which uh, God's peace uh, emanates. I wonder too if the people. You know, people living in Israel at that time, when they hear Roman propaganda about the Roman peace, they hear that, but they also know how that peace was earned, that it was very expensive, both when it comes to violence, the shedding of blood, the the killing of people, and also just very expensive on the kind of taxation that they bear every day. That's true. That, the, the tax motif comes back. You're, you're, you're paying for the means to enforce the peace that uh, we think you should have. Right. <laughs> and then that peace is... Not really a peace. It's a, it's kind of a, a false peace that has been enforced upon a world that's fighting it constantly. And but the con the contrast to that is that the peace that Jesus seems to be offering is of a whole different caliber. Right. Yeah. And there's this this sense of uh, th- that through that message, through this this uh, kind of su- subtle and subversive story, there there is the, f- the sort of the formation of a new community. I mean, you're you're getting um, these these folks who have. Uh, had to travel from from their homes, not finding any place to stay. You've got the shepherds who don't have a roof over their heads. I mean, we tend to romanticize keeping watch over their flocks by night and, you know, staying out there in the fields. Uh, maybe it's romantic uh, for those of us who like to go camping on our terms with the right equipment, all purchased from the... Uh, and from the car's the, down the hill, so you can always go exactly. home. Exactly. It it's too, too nasty out there. Exactly. A little bit of a rough way to make a living, shall we say. And yet uh, these folks are being drawn in, into a kind of uh, community around this new center. Uh, you know, it's it, that, that promise of um, drawing people into something different is already being enacted in this kind of surprising way with surprising people in the story. So, so how are we drawn in? It's all well and good to talk about Rome <laughs> so long ago, but how are we to sort of understand this subversion in our lives today? Yeah. Well, if there's ever a time in, in which um, which sort of the forces around us can seem overwhelming, Christmas is one of those times. I mean, it's um, I think during the Christmas season, I, I do feel like life is in some ways being dictated by powers beyond my control, yes, that, that there are all kinds of, of expectations that may or may not uh, sort of coincide with, with what uh, I understand the gospel to be. Um, so to hear this, uh, to hear this kind of subversive story, uh, proclamation of God's way as another way of of God's peace as another peace, um, something that's that's generated uh, through weakness, that's generated in this unexpected way, I think calls me to see the power and presence of God, uh, not necessarily in um, the, the sort of the forces of the market and all of the other cultural expectations, but uh, but in and through uh, an act that remains, I think, uh, remarkable 
uh, in, in its uh, simplicity, you know, through the birth of a child and the kind of power that will emanate uh, in terms of bringing peace from that center. The other thing I, I kind of made me think about, Craig, is that it may be an indicator about where, you know, during this, this Christmas season, where we should look for uh, God's presence most palpably. So that if if God dawns upon this world in this particular way in this story, in the middle of, of a cruel empire, um, in a very desperate situation, where is it that our eyes should be turned to during the season? Because so often we're so easily distracted by the kind of the glitter of, of decorations or, you know, even our, um, the high worship and the, and the full churches that maybe it's in those uh, places of desperation that we need to be turning our attention to in, in, in these times. Cause there is where, where God is showing us, showing up most powerfully in this world. It does. And I, and I think experientially people will sometimes speak about that, that sometimes the most memorable uh, hearing of the Christmas story comes uh, not necessarily when life is overflowing, but what, but when there is a, sort of a recognition of, uh, their own emptiness, when they've suffered some kind of dislocation, uh, when all of a sudden this story matters in a way that if if everything is already filled to overflowing, um, it's it's kind of a an irritation almost mm-hmm. to have to think about the simplicity. But here, you know, in in terms of um, thinking thinking about what does the message of uh, the birth of the child mean uh, for us in terms of opening our eyes to the to the poor to the needy, uh, very a very strong uh, I think summons there, uh, and also a sense in which um, God continues to summon the uh, the unlikely. Um, that that in our communities, the I mean the Christmas message, uh, we often think of it primarily in terms of family and close friends, but it does keep pushing the boundaries out to see uh, where where is God pushing that that boundary out, uh, the horizon of of uh, who He's calling into His community. Uh, I, I think this uh, this Christmas story does that in a very provocative way. I think there's a way that the Christmas season really, on the one hand, it really draws our attention sometimes to the poor. I mean, we think about the Salvation Army bell ringers, and we know we're supposed to be giving, right? Every Christmas cartoon says that Christmas is the season of giving, and it's about that. But there's something I hear um, in this conversation, something so much more than simply this time of year we're going to put our change in the bucket. But that, I mean, subversion of the empire is a profound idea, right? It sort of opens up this vision that maybe there's a way to change the systems of this world so that there's no longer poverty at all. I mean, that is, it's a world change. It's not simply charity, but it's, it's subversion. Yeah, that it's not just compassion, but imagination for a world turned upside down, you know, as yes. the apostles are called later in Acts. Yeah, very much so. That I and I think it's hard for us to to enter into that reality if 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 we only hear the Christmas story, you know, sort of in that context with the candles all lit and uh, yeah. the, the the sort of the, the the gentle music in the background, and so to to kind of recontextualize, you know, think about the Christmas story on the street, think about the Christmas story um, outside of the the kind of the the safe enclave in which we we normally encounter it. But to, but to think about that that kind of uh, raw edge, uh, in which it's um, it's a God who's engaging uh, the realities of social dislocation, a God who's engaging the realities of poverty, a God who's engaging uh, what life looks like at street level. Uh, if, if there are ways in which we can recapture that, um, so it's not 
too quickly sentimentalized. Um, there's a lot of edge in the story that I think can continue to turn the world upside down. What would it mean to read the Christmas story on the floor of Congress here in October <laughs> when we're recording this in the middle of a government shutdown? I mean, that idea of dislocation, though, sort of if we take that story out of the time and the place where we always read it and we read it in new context, what if we take it to a hospital waiting room in July? Or what if, you know, that there are all these different moments that that gives us new visions for what's happening there. Yeah. So maybe we should just read the story year round. And there's something there for us. Yeah. Thank, let's do it. We can have Christmas pageants all year round. Thanks, Craig, for this. This is, I think, really helpful and uh, will help us think about this story really differently in the season. Thanks. Good. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you for joining us on Bible Q&A. You can find more information at enterthebible.org. Join us again.